It's Christmas. And it's a short Christmas this year. The time between Thanksgiving and Christmas is unusually short. Um, and, and so we're unusually busy, right? And so that can be a little distracting. But, but we dare not get distracted from the message of Christmas. It's just such a great time. Um, and, and it's a reminder of what God does. Um, one of the things we forget is that Christmas came at the end of a very difficult time for the nation of Israel. There had been 400 years since the last prophet. There had been 400 years of, if you will, quiet from God. Uh, from the last prophet after the ending of the captivity when the nation came back from Babylon to the time of the appearance of the angels and the beginning of the Christmas story. That had been a long period of quiet. And during that time, uh, there had been uh, wars, and there had been the Maccabean revolt, and all kinds of things that happened. But the most devastating was that the, the Roman Empire had taken over the nation. And these people that believed so firmly that God would establish them with a king who would be a descendant of David and allow them to become a mighty kingdom were now subjugated under the most powerful kingdom in the world, really in history to that time. And, and so they, they had this hope of, of God to do great things, and yet the evidence was that God was sort of quiet, and He wasn't doing all they expected, right? And yet the nation of Israel is a people that consistently kept going through the motions, kept really trying. In fact, as, as you study them, you see that they kind of doubled down on their religious observance as a reflection of their trust in God. They, the, the priesthood became powerful, and, and the Pharisees tried to cause them to go back to the Old Testament law, and there was this movement of, of trying to grasp so hard that religious belief that they had held to so strongly. And and then all at once, angels show up. And I kind of like angels. I think we all need angels, right? I mean, they're just so glorious. I mean, there's not much we know about them. They appear a few times, particularly at key moments in biblical history. Although Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 says that we, each have, we all have angels as ministering spirits serving the people of God. That's the key verse for guardian angels. It was... Um, some of us have very busy guardian angels, right? And um, in fact, Hebrews 13 goes on and it says, be nice to guess because, quote, some of you have entertained angels not knowing it. Scripture teaches that there is an angelic reality that we don't necessarily know. But what is overwhelming in Scripture is that most of the angelic activity, while significant, is unseen. That, that there is a whole supernatural world going on, the work of God's spirits in doing all manner of things on His behalf that we don't know. But I'm still glad they're there. I kind of have a feeling they're really busy at times. And so in Luke chapter 1 and 2 and Matthew chapter 1, in the midst of this desert of of revelation from God in the midst of this drought of prophecy and other things, suddenly angels start showing up. In Matthew, they show up to the shepherds, and, and the shepherds run into town and see one who's called to be the Messiah. And in Luke, they show up to a couple first, a couple named 
uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And if you will, turn into Luke chapter 1 because I, I think this passage applies in more ways than we realize. Obviously, the annunciation, the uh, announcements of the angels coming to Zechariah and Elizabeth and then John, I mean, uh, Joseph and Mary, they're hugely significant in, in the story of redemption and the story of God sending His Son to take the sins of the world, right? I mean, the, the big meta story, if you will, of, of Jesus coming as God's solution to man's brokenness, uh, to die for the sins of the world and introduce us to what, what God would look like and His resurrection on the third day to demonstrate His power over death. That, that's the big story. That's the headline news of Luke chapter 1 and 2. But, but that, if that's all we see in that, we miss, I think, some really important aspects of it because it is also a story about God meeting people who've been disappointed, about God interacting with people who've prayed and feel like they've not been heard. The nation of Israel clearly has been praying that God would intervene and send the Messiah and wipe out Rome. We see it all through the New Testament. There's this expectation that God will come, and, and, and that's why the early crowd celebrated Jesus so much. They thought He was going to wipe out the Romans. It's a hugely significant thing that, that that's part of But they had prayed, and for 400 years, they hadn't even been a prophet. But it's demonstrated in a particular way in the life of this couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the story begins in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, Herod the Great, not a good guy, king of Judea, Judea, uh, Rome had placed him over the Israelites, and he abused them as he could. There was a priest named Zechariah. The name Zechariah is significant to the story. It means Yahweh, God, remembers again. And that priest belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. And verse 6, both of them were upright in the sight of God. Um, I don't often disagree with my old college buddy, Daryl Bach, but in his commentary on Luke, he says that, that their, their respect in the Scripture is because of their obedience to the Old Testament law. I, I disagree with what it, it says. First of all, they're upright in the sight of God. What does the Bible say causes us to be upright in God's sight? Faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Right? It was their faith that he's referring to here. And then the demonstration of that faith is the next line. They observed the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. In other words, we, we dare not make it sound as though even Old Testament saints were, were saints by virtue of their obedience because they couldn't do it any better than we did. They, they trusted God, and then they acted out in that trust by their obedience. And that's what he says of Elizabeth and Zechariah, that they, they would just keep trusting God. Next verse is really significant to the story. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Um, in my years as a pastor, I've said it often, the, some of the people that are in the greatest pain are pe couples that struggle with infertility. It, 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 it can be a devastating thing. 
It's not that there is a shame in not having children, but when, when there are couples that desire them and for whatever reason they're not able to have them. And, and it's an incredibly difficult thing. It was more difficult in the time of the first century because uh, the woman was an object of shame if she could not provide children for her husband. And so uh, that little sentence tells us there's a desperation in this couple. There's a heartache that we know because they're blameless, they had prayed many, many times, God, give us children. But it also says they've kind of given up because they're old. They're past childbearing age. But they remained blameless. You know who they are? They're those people that have been hurt deeply but keep doing the right thing. There are those people that wear deep scars, but the scars have enriched their faith, not stolen it. Um, I've been reading a book. When you're from East Texas, you always brag if you read a book. And I've been reading a book called Coddling the American Mind. And it, it, it's a book that will keep you awake at night. It, it's about, uh, written by two predominantly liberal writers about what's going on in university campuses. And we've all read about it, the things, the unrest in university campuses. And, and they, they focus on what they believe are the three great untruths that are being taught on university campuses. And this book struck me especially because two weeks ago I did George Steele's funeral. I had the privilege of uh, officiating for George Steele's funeral. George was a member of Grace Forever. He was married forever. Um, he built an incredible business. He was a faithful, godly man, and, and uh, he died. And he's a member of that greatest generation. You know, he grew up in the Depression. He literally, his parents sent him to Dallas uh, to grow up without him because they couldn't provide for him. He made as he could, went through high school, joined the uh, Army, was in World War II, and, and unbelievably difficult life, and then came back and took dance lessons last guy in the world I would have ever seen dancing. But he said, I went to USO and couldn't dance, so I decided I'd learn to dance. And in, US, in, in the dance lessons, he met Lil, and they married and danced the rest of their lives, 70-something years. It was a really incredible story. Um, but I, I, I'm hearing the story of George and all the horrible things that he experienced as a child. And I'm, I'm laying that up aside, what this book is saying about the, the great untruths that we're teaching our children and their experience. Literally, some of this stuff is coming through in student orientation, according to these authors. The first great untruth they label is the untruth of fragility. Uh, it's been said that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? But they've been taught what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Therefore, they're fearful of hardship. They're frightened of hardship. They've been taught that you, you should be protected from hardship. Therefore, they have safe rooms and all that other stuff. And, and, and one of the things I appreciate the book, it's, it's not trashing the kids. It's saying we've done this to them. But as a result, they, they're fearful. They're terribly fearful of opinions that are different. So from the right and left, they attack anyone who disagrees with them because I'm harmed by your different opinion. This is a frightful thing. They've also been taught the myth of what I feel is what is true. In other words, you know, George Steele, 
I don't know how he felt. He just didn't care. He went, came back and went to work and built a business and built a family and did the best he could. Not perfectly, but, but, and feelings matter. They're very significant, but we are teaching a generation their feelings are truth. So if they feel badly, if they feel as if there is no hope, there is no hope. What a terrible thing to teach them. So the first great untruth is this myth of fragility. The second one is that feelings are reality, and the third one doesn't apply as much, but you can hear it through all they say, and that's us versus them. We're in a battle between good people and bad people, and if you disagree with me, you're inherently bad. We've lost that ability to say we disagree, but we can still be okay, right? And this provocative book has, has really made me think, and and. and you look at Elizabeth and you look at George Steele. He had a horrible life. But he didn't, he didn't let that win because he had a hope that was bigger than his experiences and his feelings, right? And you look at Elizabeth and Zechariah and they're, they fit the same paradigm. They, they're, they're broken hearted because they have no children. They've got to be. In fact, it comes through as we read through the text, and yet they just get up every day and do the best they can because they know that just because they have heartache, it doesn't always win, and, and just because they feel bad, that doesn't substitute for truth, and everybody that disagrees with them and against them. So they had no children, even though they were both long in years. In verse 8, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Uh, the text doesn't go into the detail, but first century reader would understand this is a big deal. Uh, estimates are there were 18,000 priests in the first century. They were divided into multiple divisions. <coughs> Excuse me. Isn't that fun? They were divided into multiple divisions. And two weeks of the year, apart from the special holidays, they would have come to Jerusalem to serve in the temple. This was one of his two weeks. And then twice in the day, during the, before the burning of the morning offering and before the burning of the afternoon offering, they would take lots to see which priest got to go in and burn the incense. And this would be the one who won the lot would do it, and it would be the only time he would ever do it in his life. And many of the 18,000 priests would never get the opportunity. So as, as crazy it sounds to us, this is literally the biggest day, if you can say it this way, of Zechariah's career. And he goes in as they prepare for probably the evening offering, where they make a sacrifice on, for the sins of the nation of Israel, and he burns the incense and offers prayers, because incense represents prayers, on behalf of the nation of Israel. And the crowds are waiting outside to see what will happen. Verse 11, and then an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Oh, yeah, like you do. I love the way the Bible just, you know, and then an angel shows up. Standing at the right side of the altar of incense, love the detail. And when Zechariah saw him, 
He was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John, which means the Lord is gracious. And he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Some debate about exactly what was he praying. Well, certainly he had prayed for children. He may not have prayed for children at this moment, but you know that they had together prayed for children many times. But on, as the mediator for the nation of Israel at this particular moment, as he represented Israel in prayers as they prepared for the burnt offerings, he would have prayed for Israel. He would have prayed for their spiritual health. He would have prayed for God to work among the people. And he probably would have prayed for the consummation of the age, for God to send the Messiah that he had promised. He would have gone in and said, Lord, how long? When, when will you send that promised one to meet all of the promises of, of that you've made in the Old Testament? And the angel shows up and says, by the way, prayer's answered. You're going to have a son, and, and his name will be John. And first of all, he'll answer your old prayers because he'll be a delight to you. That, that yearning that you've had as a couple will be met. You will have a son. And as a priestly family, a Levitical family, you, you will be particularly blessed because of his role in the nation of Israel. But he will also be a blessing to many people. Answer to the second prayer on behalf of the nation of Israel because he will be a part of God's redemptive plan. Both prayers are being answered here. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. In other words, he's set aside from the very beginning as being different, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Unique in biblical history. Would make child disciplining very difficult. Um, and many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, we read that and those all sound good. Uh, Zechariah is a priest. He just heard about four Old Testament passages. Isaiah 43, Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, 1, Malachi 3, 5, and 6. He, in those many phrases, he, he just got told by God that his child is going to be the one who prepares the way of the Lord and the spirit of power in Elijah, who according to Malachi will bring about so much redemptive work, so much spiritual reformation that families who have been divided by the lack of love will be reunited by the power of God's love. Because one of the tests one of the tests of true spirituality is the impact it has on our human relationships. There is always a vertical aspect of reformation, of, of growth with God, but there's also a horizontal aspect. If, if you claim to have the vertical but destroy the horizontal, then something's wrong with the vertical. And both are going to be demonstrated by John the Baptist coming. He Zechariah doesn't just hear he's going to have a son, but his priestly gears are turning. And he says, wow, this is a big deal. The Old Testament is being fulfilled here. 
It's a shocking moment. But in verse 18, the doubts of disappointment show up because he's been, see, he's been praying a long time and it doesn't feel like God's been hearing. So Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. He is not foolish. Notice he says, I'm old. He didn't call her old. He said, well, she's along in years. You know, age does give you something, right? And the angel answered, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news, and now you will be silent and not able to speak. That's a terrible thing to do to a preacher. And until this day, the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the proper time. He is disciplined for his lack of faith. But it's also a demonstration that God really is at work because there is a miraculous event here. And I want to take a moment to say probably a lot of us have been where Zechariah is. This church is full of faithful people. Pews are full of people that keep being active and doing the Lord's work. But let's be honest, none of us is immune to the numbness, at least, that comes from disappointed prayers. I mean, where you've said, God, I believe you, but help me in my unbelief. I, I, I trust you, but I'm struggling with my trust. I, 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 I'm going to keep going to church and listen to that knucklehead. I'm going to keep reading my Bible. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep trying to serve you well. I'm going to live out my obedience. But Lord, I don't have faith and hope the way I used to. Because there are so many disappointments. I mean, I know you love me, and I know you're capable of it, and, and intellectually I know it, but the feelings, the feelings aren't the same as they were at one time because, well, because of disappointments. Because there are times when I read your word and I don't hear your voice. There are times when I trust you and I don't see you act. Isn't that true? A man whose name the Lord is the Lord is remembered. Verse 19, the angel said, I am Gabriel and you will be quiet. Verse 21, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out and couldn't speak, they realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. How do you make an angel sign? Um... And when his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. You know, scholars can be so numb. Um, they say, we don't know why she stayed in seclusion. She stayed in seclusion because she didn't want anyone to know she was pregnant. Because if she lost that baby, it would have been more hurt, right? She was so excited that she couldn't bear the possibility of losing the baby. The Lord has done this for me, she said, and these days he has shown his favor and take away my disgrace among the people. I, I claim to trust God, and yet God doesn't answer my prayers. I, I claim to serve God and, and be faithful to God, and yet God shows me up. Uh, hear me. 
This past, I am not saying, nor does this passage teach, that none of us will ever be disappointed. I am not saying, nor does this passage teach, that any faithful prayer will always come true, that every Christian couple that wants children will have them, or every Christian couple that loves each other will live together the rest of their lives. Or, I mean, there are so many forms of discouragement that comes in life because we feel in a broken and fallen, we live in a broken and fallen world, right? But it does say something to us about how we deal with that discouragement because it describes how God works. In verses 57 through 66, we see hope restored. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. Can you imagine the happiness? The baby showers, all the little onesies. Um, And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother said, no, he is to be called John. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives with that name. So they made signs to the father to find out he would like to name his child, as if he's going to disagree with mama at this point. But at any rate. And he asked for a writing tablet. To everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. And the neighbors were filled with awe throughout the hill country of Judea. People were talking about these things, and everyone heard about it, wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. And, and don't miss this. This is a story that God made promises in the Old Testament to His people that were faithful, that He would send a Messiah, and that Messiah would bring forgiveness. He would be the hope of the nation of Israel. And this is part of that story coming true. And God had promised that there would be one in the spirit and power of Elijah who would prepare the way. And John is that one, and that's part of that story, which is true. But part of it also is a demonstration that that Messiah not only brings redemption in the grand scheme of salvation, history. But the work of God also answers people in their hurt and their disappointment and their disillusionment and their doubts. That even when we keep trying to be faithful, that sometimes we can become numb to God's work, right? I mean, we, we keep trusting and believing, but there, there's a lack of joy in it and a, and a fear of, of heartbreak again. And, and, and maybe our faith isn't quite like what it used to be, but we keep going like Zechariah and Elizabeth. And while God may not answer the way he did with them, God always knows, and his redemptive work in the grand scheme of things also includes his pastoral work in your and my lives. He hears our prayers, and He hears them in our imperfections, our disappointment, and our questioning and our doubts. One of my favorite verses in Mark is, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. God doesn't wait for us to have perfect faith. We're not capable of it. Jesus said the size of mustard seed is all you need. What's the point? It's... It's not dependent on how good we are or how faithful we are. It's it's dependent on how good he is and how powerful he is. And, And while God is doing his great work and he will do his great work in our 
community and our nation and in the world. He is always at work. We dare not ever lose hope in his grand scheme, but we dare not lose hope in our individual lives as well so that we become fearful of anything hard that happens. Why? Because our hope is bigger than whatever happens. We don't allow our feelings to overcome our faith. Why? Because our hope is bigger than our feelings. We don't allow the frailty that is the human flesh steal our hope and our confidence that God is at work in the world, but he's also at work in us. And he hears our prayers and somehow, some way, his perfect will for the world will also be perfect for you and me. And I may not know it now, and I may not feel it now, and I may not even see it now, but that hope I have in him gives me the strength to keep going and also gives me the eyes to see when he finally does answer those prayers. Because sometimes in our disappointment, we don't even see it when he does answer. Some of us have become numb. And this Christmas, Zechariah and Elizabeth would say to you, stir that hope again. Revive that faith again. Things may be quiet. Prayers may be unanswered. But God is yet at work. And nothing, no power, no force, no person, nothing in all of creation can stop the Almighty God from doing His work. Let's pray. Father, forgive us that we lose hope when we have no reason to do so. But Father, we are frail. We are weak and disappointment and our feelings and hurts and the weakness that that creates is real. Lord, I pray that you would stir in us a new hope to trust you again and by that hope stay faithful and alive in our faith in you. And it's in Jesus' name today that we pray. Amen.